Amen. You may be seated. But I'd like to invite Pastor Sam Musgrave, Trinity Community Church, to uh, bring us the word this morning. Good morning. What a delight it is to be with you here this morning. This church has a special place in our heart up at Trinity Community Church. We give our greetings to you, your brothers and sisters in Christ there. And many of the young people in this congregation have a near and dear place in our heart. I think of um, the Mills children, uh, Maddie and Lauren and Kate. I just met Kate the other night and Thatcher and I think of Hannah and Joelle who were up there and I saw Griffin and and Derek and Micah. We've got a lot of familiar faces in here. So we love you and we're so excited to be with you. I am excited to be with you and Trinity Community Church with us in spirit. We're looking at John chapter 3 verse 16. John 3 16 this morning. Today I'm going to preach one verse and next time I visit next month, it'll be an entire chapter, Romans 9. So uh, we're really uh, glad to get the extremes in that regard. And as you're turning there to John 3.16, I'm going to spend some time in prayer and ask the Lord to teach us yet again that His Spirit would move through this word that He inspired Father in heaven, we bow before you. I love what my brother prayed, our high and holy king. And we expect nothing less than what you've promised to dispense from your throne, which is grace and mercy in time of need. O Father, we thank you for your word. Sanctify us by it. And we pray this for your son's glory and our eternal joy. Amen. Amen. All right, well, John 3.16, John 3.16, 4, God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. A certain pastor, many of you may be familiar with him, trekked the Alaskan tundra to preach there. And afterwards, a huge, miserable man dragged himself up to this preacher and said that he had only three weeks to live. He knew that there was a God, but he knew nothing of this God. So the preacher asked him if he had understood the gospel which had been preached. And the man replied sincerely, yes. A child could understand that. Is that it? Just understand and pray? Now, most Americans would have sent this man home to hell. But this preacher was and remains to be a soul winner. And so he says, I'll cancel my flight and I'll preach repentance for three weeks until you're saved or die and go to hell. Faith comes by hearing, so let's hear God's promises. They read 
and they read. Both Testaments, refusing to stop until Christ was formed in the heart of this man. Hours passed. Both became quite exhausted. And so the evangelist revisited John 3.16. The man sighed. He began to grow helpless. He said, we've read this already. And the preacher said, your life depends on it. So the burly man picked up the Bible yet again and read, For God so loved the world that he gave. Oh, oh, the man said, I'm saved. My sins are gone. I have eternal life. I'm saved. And the preacher said to him, what? How do you know? And the man quickly replied, haven't you ever read this verse before? And there's a sense in which we know that's true. We sympathize with it because our entire Bible fits into John 3.16. It begins with the word for or because. And that forces us backwards in John's Gospel. We have to look at what precedes John 3.16. And what precedes John 3.16 is false belief, false faith. If you think about it, chapter 2 ends with fanatics believing Jesus for a magic show. That's all they want. But Jesus didn't give himself to fanatics. He didn't trust himself to them. Then in chapter 3, in walks the Pharisee Nicodemus, who is a ruler of Israel, the teacher of Israel, and all he sees before him is a rabbi. So Jesus says to Nicodemus, you must be born again. But Nicodemus doesn't understand. So Jesus repeats himself, you must be born again. It's fascinating, not one mention of belief, not a single word on faith. Why not? Because you must be born again. That's our great need. George Whitfield went around preaching that. That was probably one of the most common things that Whitfield would preach. And finally, an older lady came up and asked him after a sermon in which he preached often, you must be born again. And the old lady said, dear Mr. Whitfield, why do you always say you must be born again? And Mr. Whitfield re responded to her, Madam, because you must be born again. And that's how Jesus responded to Nicodemus. Faith only comes by new birth. And so settling that fact, Jesus concludes in verses 14 and 15 of chapter 3, and we just read where this originally comes from. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that all who are believing in Him will have eternal life. And so, Who's the son in John 3.16? We get so used to these words, we get immune to them, and we don't think to ourselves in context, who is the son? Well, John 3.14 and 15 say that the son is specifically the son of man. 
that title comes from Daniel 7, the Son of Man, where the Son of Man is the immortal King of earth, presented before the Ancient of Days. So Jesus schools a Bible expert from Ezekiel and Daniel and now Numbers, where after God saves Israel from Egypt, they grow impatient and ungrateful and they complain and accuse God and his servant and spokesman Moses. And they say, in brief, you saved us just to kill us. That's their complaint to him. Appropriately, Yahweh sends fiery vipers to kill many of them. And they cry under his just judgment. But God compassionately has Moses lift up a metal snake on a pole so those bitten could look at it by faith and live. But where must the condemned now look to be saved? Not at some pole. But verses 14 and 15 tell us that we look at the God King, the God Man King of Daniel 7, lifted up on the cross, risen from the grave, ascended to heaven's throne, so that all those believing in him will have eternal life. Verse 16 for or because God so loved the world. This jolted Nicodemus, this should jolt us now. And we should let him school us, let Jesus school us as he did old Nick so many years ago. Let's read Psalm 2. Would you turn with me to Psalm 2? Psalm 2, keep in John's Gospel, but Psalm 2, we won't fully grasp and appreciate John 3.16 without Psalm 2. If, if, if we get... Psalm 1-2, John 3-16 unpacks itself for us. Psalm 2. Why? Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against Yahweh and against His Messiah, saying... Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree Yahweh said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve Yahweh with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way. 
for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. The Hebrew word Messiah, or you might have it anointed, is Christ in Greek. So if you noticed, Psalm 2 consolidates three titles. It consolidates the title Christ and King and Son of God. Christ, King, Son of God are the same person as we see in Psalm 2. Now, watch this. One of my favorite parts of this sermon is the following. What did Peter confess? You are the Christ, the Son of God. Why does he pair those titles together? And which title did he leave out, almost as a teaser? You are the Christ, the Son of God. That sounds familiar. How does Mark's gospel begin? The gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. What did the high priest ask to condemn Jesus? Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. It's almost like these titles belong together or something. What was Paul's first sermon? Jesus is the Son of God. He is the Christ. John will later write in his gospel, Everyone who believes Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Everyone who believes Jesus is the Son of God. I believe that's in one of his letters. Jesus is going to tell Mary, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? He says. And what does she say? Yes, Lord, I believe you are the Christ, the Son of God. Now watch this. John writes his entire gospel, chapter 20, verse 31. He says, so that you may believe that Jesus is, can you guess what he says? The Christ, the Son of God. What are they all shouting? Jesus is Psalm 2. Jesus is the second psalm. John 3.16 is the astounding love of God that he sent his king to raging and conspiring sinners who hate him, who want to throw the chains off, who want to be free of him, who want to be rid of him. And so John 3.16 isn't sentimental infatuation. This isn't just something that we, we read to make ourselves feel good. This is the invasion of love himself. This is a military tactic by the king of heaven to send forth his king of earth to earth to die in love. Amazing. Now Isaiah the prophet wrote, Unto us a child is born, to us a son is given of the increase of his government and kingdom, there will be no end. That same Isaiah later writes, Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket. All the nations are as nothing before him. 
they are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. God so loved that world, the less than nothing world, the emptiness world, nothing nations, that according to John 3.19 and John 5.42 and John 8.42, do not and cannot love God. Now an old John, a very old John, many years after this, will command, do not love the world or the things in it. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. But God the Father so loved the world. How do we make sense of this? One scholar says, God's love is to be admired, not because the world is so big, but because the world is so bad. Sin loves the world with the selfish love of participation. God loves the world with the selfless, costly love of redemption. Don't love the world the way that you and I are tempted to love the world in participation. If you love the world that way, the love of the Father is not in you. Another scholar says, God loves because it is his nature to do so. God is love. God loved because, and I love this, he would love. That scholar points out something about God that it's just like him to love. Isn't it just like him that he would love? Now, family, if God had not been angry at us with and in our sin, God would not have sent Christ to die and rid us of that sin. He must hate our sin to love us so much that he would rid us from it. You remember that old hymn? The love of God is greater far than tongue or pen can ever tell. It goes beyond the highest star and reaches to the lowest hell. Could we with ink the ocean fill, and were the skies of parchment made, were every stock on earth a quill, and every man a scribe by trade? To write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. Praise God that that is the love that he has for us. John 3.16 doesn't stop at God loved the world so much. No. The Greek says God loved the world in this way. That's what that so is communicating. God in this way loved the world that he sent his son. Which way? That he gave his only son. 
God so loved the world. God in this way loved the world that he that he gave his only son. His monogonase is the word in Greek. His one of a kind son. His totally unique son. Nothing can express the love of God greater than this. It's so large that John will cry. See what kind of love the Father has given. There's no better way for John to express it than to say, look what kind. He can just exclaim it. And Jesus says, Psalm 2, the Son is Christ the King. All land is His property. Earth in its entirety is His possession. He is the nation dasher. Every king and continent will kiss Him now or will bow later in regret. But all of God gave the best of God in Christ Jesus. Who is Christ? And we see in the beginning of John's Gospel, John 1, Verses 1 to 3 has already answered it. In the beginning, he was with God, and he was God. Without him was not anything made that was made. He is the uncreated God. Verse 14 of chapter 1, he became flesh and dwelt with us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the monogonase, the unique one, the one of a kind, from the Father, full of grace and truth. He has God's glory. Yeah, that phrase, full of grace and truth, is what we read in Exodus 34, where Yahweh pronounces himself, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful, gracious, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That phrase, abounding or full in steadfast love or grace, and faithfulness or truth, full of grace and truth, is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. He's saying that Jesus is the God that walked before Moses in Exodus 34. We've seen his glory. Verse 18, he, the monogamous God, the one of a kind, who is at the Father's side, he has made the Father known. We haven't seen God the Father, but we've seen God the Son, and if we've seen God the, the Son because he is Yahweh, We've seen what the Father would be like if he came as a man instead of God the Son. He's one of a kind. Jesus is the one and only projection of the invisible God. And that is who God the Father gave. God the Father gave us God. God the Son. There is no higher thing in anyone can give. Romans 9, verse 5 says, Christ is God over all. Acts 20, verse 28 says, God, listen carefully, obtained the church with his own blood. Wow. Says a lot about Christ, doesn't it? God could have given megacosms. But nothing save the unique image of God can bleed for image bearers of God. We were ransomed 
not with perishable things such as silver and gold. I want you to think about that. You could take all of the planets, silver and gold, and the Bible, the gospel, scoffs at it. Oh, silver and gold, all the world's riches, the approaching 90 trillion budget of the planet could not ransom your soul. We were not ransomed with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. The wealth of a trillion planets won't do. It has to be, it had to be the precious blood of Christ for treacherous blood. Though he wasn't obligated, God loved the world in this way, that he gave his monogamous, his only son. John is recording history. He's recording real events and his verbs that he uses laser focus to a precise past. He uses a verb tense that tells us he's speaking about a specific instance in the past. And let me translate the verse to give it a little bit more flavor along those lines. For at a definite moment, God loved the world in this way that at a specific instant, he gave his son. Romans 5 puts it this way. While we were still incapable, weak is kind of a weak translation. While we couldn't do anything, weak people can still do something. While we were incapable at the right time, Christ died for the godless. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We, his enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. This is the relish of the apostles. Who gave him? Who gave Christ? The father did. Why did he give the Son for us? Does he not love his Son? Does he love us more than he loves his Son? Are we seeing a deficiency in the Trinity? A deficiency of love? God forbid the thought. Read how John 3 ends. Read how this chapter ends. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. Is there any deficiency? Is there any deficiency there in God the Father towards His Son? The Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life but the wrath of God remains on him. So giving the Son, the Father has given him, the Son, everything. He so loves the Son, he'll give eternal life to anyone if they join in his love for the Son. It's amazing, isn't it? Hours before his death, Jesus said to his disciples, the Father himself loves you. 
The Father himself loves you. Do you think that those words escaped John's memory in old age? Here's God the Son looking him in the eye saying, The Father himself loves you. That's why I came. Amazing how it must have haunted him in a holy way. John 3.16 says, God so loved the world, so you don't exclude yourself. See, we don't assume that everyone in this room, we hope, we, praise, we, we pray that everyone in this room is in right relationship with God by Christ in his righteousness. But if anyone stands outside Christ, John 3.16 is here, that God so loved the world, so you do not exclude him yourself from that. You don't cut yourself off. Now you might say yes, but we've been well taught, and you have. That scripture says Jesus died only for the few, for the sheep, for the church, for the many. So when he says that he died for us, it's, it's just believers alone. And, and there's a sense in which that is very much true. Absolutely. But you, dear friend, must deal with John 3.16. We've still got that in our Bible. And are you not part of the world? When he says the world, does that not include you? It certainly does. Were Christians somehow outside the world when God saved us? We were in the world. Could any of us, therefore, become his child apart from his love for the world? Ephesians 2 says that we were, before Christ, by nature, children of wrath. Ezekiel 18 affirms God's just hatred of sin and sinners. Yet God asks, Have I any pleasure in the death of wicked? And not rather that he should turn from his way and live. Jeremiah 48 says, Let Moab wallow in her vomit. I have broken Moab like a jar no one wants. Moab will be destroyed as a nation because she defied me. Listen to this. Therefore, God says, I wail over Moab. For all Moab, I cry out. My heart laments for Moab. How can that possibly be? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. It's either eternal life or it's eternal death. There is no third alternative in Scripture. Who will never perish? Who has eternal life at this instant? Literally, as the Greek reads, all the ones believing into him. All the ones believing into him. John 3.16 is God's promise for all who believe in him right now, at this moment, in real time. Do you sense the urgency now? God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believes right now, real time, 
shall not perish, but have eternal life. We should feel the urgency. We should feel the urgency to believe in him if we aren't already. And if we are believing in him, we should feel the urgency to believe all the more. Be one believing into him. Believe now. It's not whoever, whenever, wherever. It's you now here. Believe. John 3.16 isn't written for yesterday. It's not written for this evening. It's not written for tomorrow. As scripture says, now is the time of favor. Today is the day of salvation. John Calvin wrote, boy, he gets a bad rap. He says John 3.16 is both to invite indiscriminately all to take life and to cut off every excuse from unbelievers. Do you hear that? John 3.16 is, is both to invite indiscriminately all to take life and to cut off every excuse from unbelievers. So if God's gavel slams now, only those believing now won't perish. Refusal to believe only proves that your condemnation is just if you remain under God's condemnation. J.C. Ryle says, God never asks to question if he loves us or if Christ died for us. He commands us to believe. If you do not have eternal life, it's not because God doesn't love you or because he did not give Christ for you, but because you refuse to believe into Christ. <laughs> You remember Psalm 2. Kiss the sun, lest the sun be angry, and you perish in the sun's way, for the sun's wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in the sun. That's the language of John 3.16. That's what John 3.16 is summarizing to believe into him is to take refuge into him. Why didn't Jesus condemn the world as you read on in John 3, 17 and 18? Because the world is already condemned. He doesn't have to condemn the world. It's condemned already. The king who will judge has first come to save. And so scripture says, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation. Now, why did John call Jesus the Lamb of God? The beginning of his gospel, he says, he takes away the sin of the world. Here's a question that might not often be asked. How does John view hell? Revelation, chapter 14, verse 10, written by the same John that wrote this gospel. John says, God's wrath is poured full strength into the cup of his anger to torment with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. 
So has the Lamb of God died for your sins? Or will he supervise you paying for your sins for all eternity? He's the Lamb either way. It takes away the sin of the world or supervises those who did not repent and believe. Now, we all know that we deserve to die. We all came into the world with that knowledge. Romans 1.32 says, Though they, speaking of everyone, know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. And that's why John 3.16 is for the world. We're all under the death sentence apart from Christ. Every damned soul needs John 3.16. We've got to be a John 3.16 church. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes right now in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Eternal life. And have it now. Have it this instant. All you who believe in him now have eternal life. What is that? What is eternal life? It's the very life of God. It's the divine life of the triune God. God doesn't extrapolate or create eternal life as something apart from himself and then parcels it out to people. God gives us the very life of God in the soul of those he saves. And what quality of life is that? It's infinite. It's enormous. It's limitless life. God's presence. Think about this. God's presence is depicted by John in Revelation as this electric storm raging over a quiet sea of glass. We have unlimited power over utter tranquility. Hundreds of millions worship him. Mysterious beasts and warriors alike, dragon-like creatures, swarm his throne with cries howling, holy, holy, holy. The divine council fill paradise with symphonies to his glory, yet intergalactic focus is on this tiny little rock where we men are one by his blood under bursts of paranormal war that's unseen to our eyes. Why? Because God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should have eternal life. Eternity is on the brink at every moment for us. And so John prays later in this gospel, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the world began. And so eternal life 
is everlasting love in God, in the triune God. God is love, John will say, 1 John 4. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. It's because of all of this, Charles Spurgeon, that prince of preachers, called John 3.16 the sole topic of my life. And Spurgeon says, if you reject him, he answers you with tears. If you wound him, he bleeds out cleansing. If you kill him, he dies to redeem. If you bury him, he rises again to bring resurrection. Jesus is love made manifest. John 3.16 means that you and I can marvel with Paul the Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. What shall we say to these things? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall separate us? from the love of Christ, I am sure that nothing in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Father, we pray that your love, the love of the triune God, would fall fresh on us again today and that we would respond with faith, trust, obedience, repentance, that we would take refuge in the Son of your love. Glorify him in our hearts, we ask, for his great glory that we will behold with him for eternity. And we praise you, Father, for your great love, which we'll sing about now. And we thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you, Sam. Uh, definitely blessed by our partnership with Trinity Community Church. Very grateful for uh, Andre and Chuck and for you and all the staff there uh, who have participated and, and helped uh, with this place. Um, we're so please send our love to them when you return, and uh, we look forward to hearing you again next month. Um, let us please let us now stand and respond to the preaching of God's word with hymn number three hundred and fifty-one. How deep the Father's love for us. <laughs> 